0: All right, all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 93 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the United Airlines Flight 93 episode of the SLS Cast, because as we celebrated a, or at least remembered rather, a rather somber 9-11 anniversary for this year, 13 years in the passing, this is to remark United Airlines Flight 93, the domestic scheduled passenger flight that was hijacked by Al-Qaeda on September 11, 2001 as part of the September 11th tax. It was. It crashed into a field near the Diamond T Mine in Stony Creek Township, Pennsylvania, near Indian Lake and Shanksville, during an attempt by some of the passengers to regain control, killing all 44 people on board, including the four hijackers. No one on the ground was injured. And with that rather somber note, but important note in our history, I, of course, am Matt.
1: Wasn't that there based on a movie? Didn't that happen in a movie made by that one guy one time? I I, I saw it there in the theater. People get on a plane and crash and... I guess. Oh, God, Matt. You sound so depressing. What is wrong? What is going on? Because
0: it was a serious thing. I was just, you know, trying to, you know... Switch switch gears a little bit there, you know.
1: It's all right though, you know. We shall let's switch. Let's make this enjoy or back to enjoyable. But yes, it is very important. So it is definitely something to note. But hey, I mean, it was a movie. I didn't care for the movie too much.
0: I I never saw the movie. I um I underst- I, I understand it was a uh, uh, it was turned into a movie. I'm not sure what all they did. I, I know that. Uh, it was a critically acclaimed movie.
1: Yeah, it just came out. I think a little too soon. Well, it came out in 2006,
0: so I mean it had been five years. Oh, at
1: that was point. it? Wow. Yeah. Felt like it was much. Cl- it was closer. Bizarre. No.
0: I know, but even then, that was eight years ago. I mean, it has been 13 years, so it's amazing how much life has moved on in in that time.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, life does have to move on with every with every tragedy, you know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And,
0: uh, and I'm, it, it is both a blessing and a curse you know that, that that happens. It's a blessing in the fact that um, it allows people to move forward and it allows us to still find meaning and, uh, and new things to discover and celebrate. But it's also sad because sometimes people can forget. You know? And that's a very dangerous thing. Uh, as we, you and I, who have studied history... Uh, can definitely attest to, but as you said, a moment of somberness is is acceptable. But we are a show that is not exactly somber by nature, are we not?
1: <laughs> that is correct. We are definitely not. We at least we shouldn't be. Hopefully, we don't come across <laughs> depressing and you know.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, I guess uh, who are you then?
1: I. They call me Tim. I live in Los Angeles, California. I am a liker of movies, I guess. Uh, Yeah, I do the movie and film thing, for those of you who do not know. I work in the entertainment industry. Why not? We're just going to reintroduce ourselves. And yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, awesome. Indeed. How was your past week?
0: Uh, It's been very stressful, just... Too much school, too much stuff going on here. Yeah. So I don't have time for anything anymore. Yeah? Yeah. What would, very, would you wish literally you Literally had... very stressed out all the time. I'm sorry? Yeah.
1: But you did find time to watch multiple seasons of Once Upon a Time, I saw, on your Facebook.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been missing sleep for that. That's for sure. <laughs> and now I am all caught up. So... I guess that'll that'll um, leave me time to sleep now, anyway. So I won't be as stressed out, I guess.
1: Yeah?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And while it's a very good show overall, there are some pretty glaring instances of terrible writing.
1: Oh, I bet. In, yeah. in
0: this show. Used as major plot point.
1: Like, um, like trying to keep a kid-friendly... Or family friendly, and so the plot has to get a little goofy. Is that the reason why? Or is it because they ran into a wall and had to devise a way to, you know, get over that wall, or around the wall, or under the wall? More like things like um, they try to
0: stretch out subplots in ways. So they take the season as usually one big arc, which is fine. I mean, you know, some, some shows do that, some shows don't. Uh, this particular show does typically take one entire story arc. And then um, they will inject subplots into that that will either relate to the complete story arc so that you can get kind of a little bit of backstory or anything, Um and some subtext, which is cool when they do that. Or they just kind of do this Lost thing where they do the red herring stuff. The problem is, is where Lost was very good about making you wonder which was which, Once Upon a Time does just... It is completely obvious when they're doing something that is subtext and uh, backstory so that you understand the characters better and more of how the overall arc is relatable to what's going on. And then the just going off on a tangent to try and mislead you. Because when they do that, that's where the piss poor writing is. And it's completely obvious. Okay. The other thing that happens, yeah, yeah, and then the other thing that happens is that they will then very obviously run out of story. And instead of trying to put some filler in earlier on, they will just let that part of the story run its course and then inject some filler at the end. And you're like, why? Why now? What? So yeah. <laughs> anyway, but you know. Well, well I'm we're...
1: glad to hear that Disney can do a little bit of wrong, even though it doesn't, you know, completely ruin the show for you. <laughs> it, it, it like kind of makes me happy a little bit on the inside. It's like, yes, there there is some wrong there. It's like Girl Meets World. That show fucking sucks. I just I, did you have you had a chance to catch it like on YouTube or? I don't know if they have it like on Hulu or whatever. Wait, which one? What? Girl Meets World, the remake. Oh, of, of
0: course. No, you know what? I still haven't seen that yet. I is it any good?
1: No. Watch the Aww. first episode, and you tell me if you want to continue watching that piece of shit. <laughs> if people come up to me and said, "I absolutely love Girl Meets World," I'll be like, "Well, then you never liked Boy Meets World because that defecates all over it. Completely. It's ridiculous."
0: That is, uh, that is funny. Yeah. Uh, I, I will have to check that out. Uh, on an interesting note, I mean, I know we don't live cast or, you know, or anything. I, I tweeted earlier, and don't worry, I'll save you the whole Twitter spiel and all that good stuff. We'll just do it at the end. Um, but I did, uh, tweet out that, you know, hey, I'm about to, we're, you know, uh, we're about to start recording episode 93 of the sls cast and i you know and i put yay and, and then in parentheses i put in best kermit the frog voice you know because that's it you know you know how you do the whole thing you know you know hey it's john denver here we go yay! right you know he would do that thing
1: john denver
0: <laughs> so well I'm, I'm going back to the original oh no i gotcha novel. i gotcha yeah. and so- um
1: John Denver yeah, was worth so cheering. Yeah, and so on
0: Twitter, so I just put that out there. I mean, all I did was reference at the SLS cast, right? Because it's our show, and I'm trying to plug us, yeah, right, in the good way. And <laughs> whoa, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Kermit Frog sends me a thing that says at net twit one two three four five, hi ho. <laughs> uh, I didn't. Uh, I- I didn't even, I didn't put at Kermit the Frog, I didn't put, I I just put in best, and there's someone out there called Kermit Frog, and it tweeted at us, or me, specifically, but
1: yeah, that was... So, basically, if you're not listening to our show, and not following the lead of Kermit the Frog, or Kermit Frog... You are failing at life. (laughs) I'm telling you what, I just was pretty impressed
0: (laughs) that someone was able to figure out that somebody somewhere along the way has followed us. Because this is not a follower of mine uh, that I'm aware of. I've I've never... uh, Yeah, so... Hilarious. um, Yeah. Anyways, so... (laughs) You know, so that's weird. I guess I'm done. Would you like to get to the news? (laughs) We shall, yes. All right, let's do it, folks. Here we go. It's the news. Right, the news sir um, I guess why don't you go first you've got more than me this week for news
1: sure first off for me from the montrealgazette.com yes we do talk about news from Canada so I'm sorry to all those that might not like it just kidding Canada' That's a
0: very good that was actually a very good uh, Canadian impression by immediately saying I'm sorry as soon as you reference Canada that was that
1: was very good. Well, thank you, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that.
0: No problem. Uh, I'll, I'll
1: just be. Maybe today can be our Canada show, and we can just be super nice. Find find yes. a reason to be nice.
0: That's right, and we can be America's hat. <laughs> our hoot be America's hoot. Uh, no, they don't. Uh, that 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 doesn't make any sense because hoot would be howt for us because they say a boot instead of about, eh.
1: Oh, well.
0: Don't be a hoser now.
1: always thought you'd be a good Canadian. I don't know why. I think
0: I'd let you know. That's right. We have ways of making you pronounce the letter
1: U. I know. You do have the buzz cut to be Canadian.
0: (laughs) Actually, the only thing that I can truly say, uh, because I have friends that are Canadian and everything... Uh, the coolest thing is definitely from Strange Brew where you get to learn how to put a baby mouse in a beer bottle and then you feed it a little bit and water it so that it grows a little bit in there and then you take it back and you say, I found a mouse in my beer and I want to get a free case.
1: From the Montreal Gazette, (laughs) an article here, Night of the Living Dead director Romero unimpressed by today's zombies. And this is uh, what it says. uh, I'm going to start a couple paragraphs into it here. The New York-born Romero, who moved to Toronto about a decade after marrying a Canadian, didn't elaborate on why the controversial mayor gives him the shivers, but he's... Pretty clear that current horror movies aren't rattling him. There are, quote, "...very few horror films that I think are worth their salt," end quote, uh, says Romero, who has directed several other dead movies as well as Creepshow and the Stephen King-inspired Monkey Shines, among others. Oddly, I'm not a big horror fan, he says. His favorite movie is, in fact, 1951's fantasy opera The Tales of Hoffman. I like the oldies, Romero says. I find that the craftsmanship, the amount of time that they had to shoot them, it just makes me drool. Romero points out that he's never done a horror movie just for the sake of being horrifying. The horror films that I've made have been satirical in one way or another, or political, and I really think that's the purpose of horror. I don't see that happening very often. Romero's Night of the Living Dead was shot for $114,000 in black and white in 1968, considered the father of the modern zombie flick. Its tale of people besieged of shambling, grunting, reanimated corpse is considered a landmark film now and has been endlessly examined for its social and political messages. It is even in the permanent collection of the New York's Museum of Modern Art. End all quotes there. And and the article goes on for there where they talk about more of how, you know, the zombies are, you know, used as satire than it being a horrifying piece of filmmaking. So what do you think, Matt? Do you think that that's kind of a, a thing that some horror movies are lacking nowadays? Or do you wish that they would make more Horror movies that are more of like satire, political side satire, or uh, a part of social commentary? I don't know.
0: I think just like any truly sophisticated genre, there's room for both. And I think that you do get that in movies like... Um, 28 Days Later, um, Scream. Uh, uh, to a lesser degree, movies like Outbreak or World War Z. Uh there's room for that. And then you have movies that, for example, like we're going to be covering this evening, You're Next, um, and uh, Insidious, and things like that, where they're just designed to just be scary um, through different styles of scare. uh, Violent scary, supernatural scary, what have you. So I I think, actually, I think it's just fine the way it is. I think that um, when those kinds of movies happen that are, uh, that are, that have satire in them or commentary in them and they happen organically then I think that that's awesome. So I actually I honestly I really think that the state of that style of filmmaking is actually pretty good in that regard. Especially in the horror genre.
1: Cool. Cool.
0: Yeah. So for me first up from uk.yahoo.com which you know yahoo movies basically uh courtesy of tom butler dwayne the rock johnson confirms black adam dc movie role indeed after months nay years of speculation dwayne the rock johnson has finally confirmed he'll be playing the villain black adam in an as yet unconfirmed movie based on the the, (laughs) excuse me based on the shazam dc comics property The wrestler-turned-actor tweeted an image of the baddie holding the superhero in a headlock with the caption, Kneel at his feet or get crushed by his boot. My honor to become hashtag Black Adam. Of course... For those who don't know, Black Adam is the primary nemesis of Shazam, the red and gold costumed DC Comics hero, formerly known as Captain Marvel. His origin story has been changed numerous times in the Source comics, but Black Adam is said to have been granted special powers by ancient Egyptian gods, blessing him with unlimited stamina, super speed, incredible strength, vast wisdom, the power of flight, and unlimited courage. Let's just hope it wasn't the Scorpion King. What do you think, sir? Are you, uh... Thinking this is a good casting call? Are you even... Do you even care? Um, Do you want to see a movie about Black Adam? And or... You know, Shazam?
1: I know nothing of these comic book characters, so... Well, I I
0: honestly think this is one of those... um, This is one of those characters that has been woefully neglected in the superhero genre. And if you go on to netflix they do have a pretty good selection of dc comic uh cartoons and stuff like that i don't want to say anime because it's not really anime but it is strictly speaking animation so you could say cartoons but there's a lot of that stuff in there and it is not for kids so i would definitely kind of peruse the you know do a search in netflix for some black adam stuff um or Shazam and see what you come up with and maybe you'll see some stuff in there too
1: Shazam does he does he ever say that Sh- Shazam uh, actually
0: it's pretty funny he does um if you want to get a good idea see, he does seriously it, yeah but it's not but it, he's not sitting there you know in some effen- effeminate humorous way going Shazam no I mean it, it's are, not are you feminine as a superhero I saying that you did then, <laughs> but, um, but for okay, uh, there is a uh, there's an MMO out there which is massively multiplayer online game, and it is called DC Universe Online. It is uh, you could shorten it to DCUO. There, uh, I would say an even easier way to get an idea of what Black Adam and Shazam would look like. Per se is to actually just go and watch the original DC Universe uh, online cinematic. It's about seven minutes long, excellently uh, crafted. All the professional voice actors are there, and um, you will, yeah, and you'll actually get to see him uh, see him use the whole Shazam and all that good stuff. So, and it's pretty fucking epic uh, as far as that goes. Big fanboy props for that film anyway for that little seven minute short
1: alrighty from variety.com no good deed uses star powers social media to top box office and this is written by brett lang star power and social media savvy propelled no good deed to the top of the box office this past weekend the 13 million dollar film nearly doubled its production budget in its first three days of release pulling in an impressive $24.5 million. The home invasion thriller was able to trump box office predictions because Sony and Screen Gems, the companies behind the film, expertly deployed Idris Elba and Taraji P. Henson on Twitter to hawk the story of a district attorney menaced by a killer. You have two terrific actors who have followings, and this weekend showed their collective star power is very powerful," said Paul Derggbergadigan. Paul Derggbergadigan. Paul Durgar Badian. Paul Durgar Abedian. Paul Durgar Abedian. Paul Durgar Abedian, senior media analyst at Rentrack. I tried practicing his name earlier and it still comes out all kinds of screwed up. Both actors will likely see their stats rise as a result. Elba has had slowly supporting roles in Thor and Prometheus but hadn't carried a film to these kinds of heights on his own shoulders since 2009's Obsessed. He retains a passionate following from his days playing a drug kingpin on HBO's The Wire. Henson has an Oscar nomination on her circulation vitae thanks to 2008's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and was part of the Think Like a Man ensemble, but hasn't been front and center in a promotional campaign like she was here. I wouldn't call them fool-on movie stars in their own right, said Phil Contrino, Vice President and Analyst with BoxOffice.com. They're not bankable on their own terms, but this could certainly change that. Sometimes, all it takes is one film. The concept of movie stardom has taken its knocks in recent years, as Hollywood has tried and failed to launch a new generation of A-listers to rival the Tom Cruises and Julia Roberts of an earlier era. The old days where an actor's name above the title was enough to guarantee a big opening, Weekend have vanished. However, pairing the right actor with the right vehicle can still reap dividends, as evidenced by Liam Neeson's success playing Avenging Angels and Melissa McCarthy's track record with R-rated comedies. And it goes on talking about how Idris Elba and Tahari are both terrific actors, and how going on Twitter... And commenting on the film to basically provide incentives for people to go and see the movie, you know, uh, was was a big draw. I mean, I don't know if it's mainly the actors to think, or if it's just social media in general. That, you know, social media, as we all know, has become such a uh, a big promotional tool that they can kind of con anybody to go see any movie just by sending out a few tweets or saying, hey, if you do this and keep your receipt... You might get this, or if you, hey, you tweet, us, or tweet us a picture of you holding up your movie ticket stub, and we might retweet you, or we might tweet you back saying thanks, so people can see how cool you are for spending two seconds on your phone to type something out and hopefully get recognition from somebody who has no idea who you are, and probably will never know who you are. It's kind of goofy, but yet it it proves to be a very, uh, you know, uh, a good piece of promotional material
0: interesting right on right on all right well next up for me from hollywoodreporter.com courtesy of alex ritman helen mirren wanted to do hundred foot journey in french the actress shot scenes in english and french but says most americans quote will not accept films with subtitles End quote. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, turns out that Helen Mirren has revealed that she was initially hoping to play the role of restaurateur Madame Mallory in French. Uh, and she was speaking with The Guardian. Mirren said that the opportunity to speak French in front of the camera was one of the main reasons for her to choose the film. Quote, I speak pretty good French and was very excited about finally being able to do a film in French. Uh, end quote. But in the final cut, her character uses what is called franglish a heavily accented English with a smattering of French words. Quote, The reality is, is that it's a Disney movie. The other reality is that the vast American public will not accept films with subtitles. People in Ohio have to go and see the movie. End quote. She added that she fought, quote, very hard and argued very passionately, end quote, for French to be used. She goes on to say, quote, I shot most scenes in French and in English, hoping they would use the French, but they didn't. But I did poke in as much French as I could, end quote. Um, I don't know. Tim, where do you kind of land on this? I, I don't think... I mean, I think she's got a point, but... How big of a deal really is it? She seems like she's pretty a... Uh, uh, I don't want to say she's pissed or anything, but she does seem uh, severely disappointed that... Um, a movie for American audiences was more or less shot in English?
1: Uh, I can definitely see both sides of the story. I mean who knows? I mean maybe it I mean certain movies work better in English or translate better in English for an American audience than a movie that is shot and uses subtitles. I haven't seen this movie so I, I really don't know. I know it's it's been getting mixed to positive reviews. But, I, you know, I, I don't know. And, like, if it's always nice to watch a really good foreign movie. Oh, agreed. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think if it's based... You know, I, I can't remember if it's based on a true story or not. But, I mean, if it's based in France, and it's about a French person, sometimes it's nice to hear it in the, the country's language, than it being played by an American or heavily british accented actor who speaks a little bit of french here and there throughout the movie so
0: oh yeah and i mean i I do think that she kind of has a point i don't know that she necessarily had to call out ohio (laughs) specifically (laughs) um but it is true i mean most theatergoers here in the states won't uh, they, they can't seem to use their uh peripheral vision and stare at a screen and then read text at the bottom of it, but uh, which is really a shame because there is just a ton of good movies out there uh, from other countries. So, but I don't know. It just seems like in this particular instance, it seems like it was a movie that was done more for English-speaking audiences. Uh, I, but again, uh, just like you, I haven't seen it, so I don't want to be speaking too much out of turn. But I did want to get your opinion on it, so what else do you have for us, sir?
1: All right, so Kevin Smith has his new black comedy horror movie called Tusk coming out really soon, within the next month. Matt, you talked about this uh, an episode or two ago. Well, apparently, Tusk has been getting some uh, pretty decent criticism, like very positive criticism, and uh, Kevin Smith really isn't used to this. And uh, from another article here, from BuzzFeed.com, the crazy horror movie that made Kevin Smith fall in love with Filmmaking Again, written by Alison Wilmore. And it says this, It's been 20 years since Clerks. It's number Kevin Smith wearing the signature hockey jersey and ensconced in a Toronto hotel room two days after the world premiere of his latest movie, Tusk, repeats, with self-conscious pride. Not every 90s wonder Kid has lasted so long or come off a Toronto International Film Festival screening filled with cheering fans in walrus masks. 20 years into your career, you're really not supposed to be doing anything good or different, he told BuzzFeed News. Well, there's no arguing that Tusk... The proudly batshit new feature Smith just premiered at the festival, which is set to open in theaters on September 19th. Actually, a lot uh, sooner than, uh, than what I said. It's a very different movie. And it's also surprisingly good. The unpredictable horror comedy Mary Smith's distinctive voice with... Some startling body horror and stars Justin Long as Wallace Brighton who travels to a remote area in Canada to interview a promising sounding oddball for his podcast. The film was conceived during an episode of Smith's podcast called Smodcast, during which he and producer Scott Monsier, or Mosier freestyled a potential movie based on a hoax online ad offering a rent-free place to live to anyone willing to wear a walrus suit. It's no accident that Wallace is also a podcaster, though Smith only sees a little of himself in the character, who was significantly shaped by Long's input. It was Long who pitched Wallace as a guy made callous and arrogant by his online success, suggesting to Smith, I think there's something interesting to be said about a guy who's losing his humanity, but who lost it already? As much as I would like to say Wallace is me and this is a metaphor, it really isn't. I thought about it one moment. If I go out there and start telling people this whole movie is a metaphor for working with Bruce Willis, that would get me a lot of press. But it just wouldn't be fucking true. It goes on to say that uh, Willis played a part in a movie from a couple years ago called Cop Out that was uh, was received quite negatively Soon after, uh, he released a movie called Red State, which I, I've yet to watch, which was actually one of his his first more serious-ish horror type films. And uh, the article picks up right after that, saying that, uh, but there's little sign of the discontent and exhaustion with Smith Talks About Tusk, which was made on the cheap and being put out by Upstar Distributors, A24, which also handled Spring Breakers and Under the Skin. Smith attributes the change to getting back to his clerk's days of low budgets and creative freedom, assembling elements like the Canadian setting and Red State Star Parks. "'I priced myself out of being interesting for a while,' he admitted. "'I did it to myself. It is a glided cage.'" That Smith is happy to have left behind along with the considerable work of putting out a movie by himself. At the end of the day, having distribution help is amazing. He said, relieved to have found a company he trusts to market Tusk the right way. And the article goes on from there. Uh, I've read an, another article, which pretty much said that he forgave critics. Uh, I guess he was, he always thought that critics were out to get him. Obviously that is not true. Uh, I, I see. I know a lot of people, a lot of directors in particular, think that way. A lot of his movies are cult classics, are indie favorites, so obviously you're not going to get, you know, across-the-board critical acclaim for a movie like that, because that's kind of like for a niche audience, you know? I mean, for him, it might be a bigger audience than just like a small audience, but still... You know, and just so happens, Tusk, these horror comedies, these horror black comedies are becoming more mainstream. Even black comedies are just becoming more mainstream. So, of course, this is just getting more praise. And you also have more young people making films. You have more young people getting involved in the Toronto Film Festival and the Sundance Film Festival. So, you're getting a lot of. Praise for younger younger writers and younger movie reviewers and just younger fans. So his time has come. It's just you know he just had to wait for it. I think.
0: Yeah, you know it's only been like twenty three
1: years. I think that's I think that's a long enough time to wait. <laughs> True, <laughs> but yet he didn't try to make a more of a, a broader movie until twenty years later. Jersey Girl. <clears throat> what?
0: sorry excuse me you know, they can't all be winners now can they no. <laughs> uh let's see here deadline.com uh courtesy of mike fleming jr this is my gonna be this is gonna wrap up the news on my end sony and mgm set rodney rotham to script 23 jump street will lord and miller return exclusive Sony Pictures MGM and Original Film have started forward motion on 23 Jump Street they've set Rodney Rotham to write the script Rotham was one of the writers who scripted 22 Jump Street for Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill the big question is whether Phil Lord and Christopher Miller will be back to direct the third film I can report that they are overseeing the script, and of course, the I being Mike Fleming Jr., so I guess Mike can report that they are overseeing the script, with Rotham as producers on the third film, with Neil Moritz, Hill, and Tatum. The directing job is theirs if they want it, but insiders said they haven't committed to direct at this point. The last film ended with a montage of future sequels that was humorous, but when the second installment of your film grosses $320 million on a $50 million budget, another installment is inevitable. What do you think there, sir? Just truly inevitability at play due to the amount of money it made? Or could there actually be room to squeeze out the trilogy closer
1: i don't know things like this are kind of difficult to <laughs> to predict or to, to even...
0: divine you know
1: yeah cause, i mean it's not... it's always a little discerning to hear somebody say we're gonna make a movie because the last one did so well you know it's not like they made 21 jump street with a plan to make 22 jump street and then close it off with a conclusion no they got to you know, I, I'm just worried that they're just going to try to come up with something and kind of recycle the same sequel gags as they did with the second one.
0: Well, I, and again, we, you know, when we were talking about this before the show, I got to say, as long as they maintain the level of self-awareness that they have had over the last two movies, and they can do some interesting things like, with, like the original Scream trilogy did... Where they purposely inject things that are going to turn it on its head and then resolve it like a good trilogy should be. I think that there is enough to to get to basically run the last few the last little bit of mileage that this franchise has and get it done right. Um, But there are very many pitfalls to be had. However, I think that if they even if they just throw another fifty, let's just say seventy five million. You know, because of inflation and whatever else they want to have. I'm pretty sure that they'll probably get, even if it was a f- crappy movie, I'm pretty sure they'll probably get even $150 million. So even at that point, they would still make their money back on it. Um, but I'm just hoping that it's worthy
1: as well. So, Anyways...
0: Um, was that going to do the news overall, or do you have one more thing you wanted, or more that you wanted to share with us? I
1: just have a little bit more. A couple passings happened this past week. One of them was James Bond villain Richard Keel. He passed away at the age of 74, which is actually pretty young for him, in, in my view, in my eye, because I always thought he was much older than, I guess, than he was in, in Moonraker. He was the character of Jaws. Uh, if you didn't catch that reference already. And as well, he was also the guy with the nail in his head in Happy Gilmore. I forget his name, but yeah, he was definitely in that movie as well. According to this Variety article here, Richard Keel, who most famously played Jaws in two James Bond films starring Roger Moore, The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, and also appeared in the Adam Sandler comedy Happy Gilmore, died last Wednesday afternoon in a hospital in Fresno, California. TMZ originally reported this article. The actor had broken his leg earlier in the week, but it's not clear whether that contributed to his death. Keel had lent his voice to a James Bond video game in 2003, but most recently had voiced Vlad for the animated film Tangled in 2010. Keel's villainous Jaws was so popular with movie audiences who saw The Spy Who Loved Me that the character was made sympathetic in follow-up Moonraker. Second passing is Denny Miller, the star of Tarzan and Wagon Train. He passed away at the age of 80 years old. According to this Hollywood Reporter article, he played basketball at UCLA under John Wooden and appeared with Peter Sellers in The Party and in commercials for Fish Sticks. Denny Miller, who played Scout Duke Shannon on the classic TV western Wagon Train, was the first blonde Tarzan on the big screen. He passed away at the age of 80 years old. Miller, who wore a yellow rain slicker as the Gordons' fisherman in TV commercials for the seafood company for more than a decade, was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease in January and died Tuesday in Las Vegas, his agent David Moss told The Hollywood Reporter. So two performers, a lot of you probably didn't even remember them or don't know who they are, even. I'm sure more people would might, well, depending on who you are, you'd you'd recognize uh, one of them over the other. But yet, two talented performers, two memorable performers, passed away last week.
0: Okay, good news, good news. Or at least it was a good news segment, I think. So, I believe it is now time for... I'm the only one who liked it. Who is the one that liked this movie? Not me. Who is the one that wants to watch again? Oh, you? Who is the one that wants to watch the movie? That was stupid. I'm the only one that liked it. That's me, folks, watching the movie.
1: Oh man, I liked that movie, and nobody else did. Who is the one that loves the movie?
0: All right. Um, let's see. So, of course, this is a movie. Um, where where it was either critically. Panned and or a financial failure, and yet we liked it. Now, of course, since Tim and I have different tastes in movies uh, that sometimes come together, we have each chosen a movie. And Tim, why don't you lead us off for this one?
1: Alrighty. So the I am the only one who liked it for this episode for moi is Tim Burton's 2001 Planet of the Apes. Yes, I chose Planet of the Apes from 2001. Yes, that Tim Burton one, which is definitely less of a Tim Burton movie than what many people probably expected. Yet, you watch this movie and you wonder like, well, I mean, how else could the movie get darker and less, you know, family-friendly than how it was, you know, how it actually turned out. This movie on RottenTomatoes.com has a 45% rotten rating and For this reason, this remake of Planet of the Apes can't compare to the original in some critics' mind, but the striking visuals and B-movie charms may win you over. The movie was released July 27th of 2001. It grossed $180,011,740 domestically and $362,211,740 worldwide. It was nominated for BAFTAs, Saturn Awards, British Academy Awards... For uh, Rick Baker for makeup, Colleen Atwood costumes, Tim Roth and Helena Bonham Carter also were nominated for their performances, which are actually pretty damn good. And even uh, Danny Elfman for his score was nominated for a Grammy award, and I think that was like the thirty-second or thirty-fourth Grammy award. But yet, it does have a forty-five percent on Rotten Tomato. I talked to I mentioned to uh, to Matt, I was doing this last week, and he said that he. Like the movie as well, that he didn't hate it. He doesn't hate it. And it turns out a lot of people hate it. A lot of critics were split. People were so up the butt of the original movie that they forgot that the same reasons they were criticizing the Tim Burton movie was what they should have also criticized, or what they should also criticize the original one for. The thing about the Planet of the Apes of Tim Burton one is that it was, to me, a really good remake. A really good remake. They took what we all know and love from the original movie, which were uh, which were fine actors dressed in ape costumes, wearing ape makeup, wearing ape human attire, you know, playing the domineering slave, human slave owners and all that stuff. They made a modern updated version of it with really good people. I mean, you have Mark Wahlberg in it, who played a pretty good character. He's the Charlton Heston character in the film. Helena Bonham Carter plays the female ape Ari who ends up kind of not falling for him particularly but they end up becoming friends and she's trying to help him out tim roth plays thade who's the main villain of the movie michael clark duncan which is kind of like the second in command when the within the the bad apes you have estelle warren you have chris christopherson even and again it was directed by tim burton written by mark rosenthal william royals and lawrence connor And this was a Fox, 20th Century Fox movie. And this is what some of the critics had to say about it. Kenneth Turan from the Los Angeles Times said this, The actors in the non-human roles are mostly too buried by makeup to make strong impressions. Unfortunately, none of the good work counts as much as you'd think it would. Planet of the Apes shows that taking material too seriously can be as much of a handicap as not taking it seriously at all. Then Elvis Mitchell from the New York Times enjoyed the movie a little bit more by saying that it was just pure entertainment. Other people said that the that most of the credit goes to Rick Baker himself for producing these fantastic Apes and the makeup, and it's just great people. They're able to hide these actors, yet these actors were able to give really good and pretty and nuanced performances. Even you have Paul Giamatti, who is definitely funniest guy, the uh, one of the actually the funniest character, definitely in the whole movie. And you're able to watch Paul Giamatti be an ape and play his character like he would if he was playing a goofy scientistish character or whatever it's just really entertaining it's not the greatest movie but like i said before and like what the rotten tomatoes critic said is that it makes for a good b grade movie and i think that's all it was trying to do it was trying to be a send-up to the original planet of the apes while giving you a fresher look at it, the ending of the movie wasn't anything spectacular. But you got to look at the the action scenes, you got to look at the stunt work, and Danny Elfman's score, and the uh, makeup effects, and the costumes. You have a movie that was also shot beautifully. I mean, the cinematography in the movie is just great. Even the art direction is great. The design, the whole set, de- every set design was really cool. And the story itself, again, was just enough uh, to be different from the original movie that it made for a good remake. It's kind of, it, it, in a way, you can kind of compare this to how Star Trek Into Darkness was, well, it was an indirect remake to The Wrath of Khan, but like what Matt said classically in our. Episode, whatever, whatever, into the SLS cast, I think that was the name of the episode. He said that Star Trek uh, Into Darkness was the perfect remake of The Wrath of Khan. Well, this was a really good remake of Planet of the Apes. Again, it's not trying to be over dramatic, it's trying not to make you like freaking cry. You root for the good guy, you hope he wins, and then there's a big twist at the end. You either buy it or you don't buy it. And the movie made a shit ton of money and believe it or not i think a lot of people did enjoy it and i bet that if all these people that gave this movie a negative review if they were to go back and watch it today watch it now i think maybe 30 or 40 percent of them would change their rating they might look at it and go you know what this movie actually aged pretty well turn your brain off. It's not mindless action, but it's definitely something to kick back and watch with your kids. And you know what? With a movie about talking apes, what more do you really want? (laughs) So again, my I'm the only one who liked it for this go around was Tim Burton's 2001 remake of Planet of the Apes.
0: Alrighty. Well, let's see here. So my movie is definitely one that was both, uh, critically panned as well as, as well as a financial failure. It is, uh, from Buena Vista Pictures in 1990. It is Mr. Destiny, a 1990 comedy film starring James Belushi. Now, this movie also starred Michael Caine, uh, John Lovitz, who was popular at the time for SNL and what have you linda hamilton uh an up-and-coming renee russo and an up-and-coming courtney cox who let's face it prior to friends did not have the best of movie roles masters of the universe anyone i you know so that's the you know so take that part as you will i guess but this is a movie that's kind of like an interesting twist on it's a wonderful life it's not. Uh, it doesn't. It's not a Christmas movie, but it is about a guy who struggles financially, um, has a rough time with his job, and really feels like there was one point in his life that everything kind of switched, and it's this baseball game. And lo and behold, you know, you've got like this Mr. Destiny kind of guy Um his name the character's name is mike he's played by michael cain and he's kind of like a guardian angel and he says well what if we could change that what if instead of messing up and striking out in this ball game you hit the home run you you think you should have hit and so they switch it and then of course his life is magically better but not as much as you would think. And so the movie goes on to show just exactly how crazy things can get. And it's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be charming. supposed to be uh, poignant. And kind of teach the, the moral of the story being, you know, just because you don't have what you think you want doesn't mean you don't have what you should want. Or have what you have. Um... This is, and, it, and for me, this is exactly that. It's a very simple, charming movie. Very wonderful story. Good performances all the way around. Is this the biggest blockbuster movie you've ever seen? No. But does it deserve a uh, 38% on Rotten Tomatoes? For me, no. Uh, does it deserve a... Uh, 59% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. No, because it's just a very good movie. And it's so simple uh, and and just such a wonderful little story. Um, it is very Capra-esque. It was directed by James Orr, but um, still very Capra-esque for me. Very simple. And is a movie that I really think, if you saw it on cable and just sat down and watched it, you, you would not feel like you wasted 110 minutes. So that is my movie. Very simple movie. And a very simple, yet poignant, plea for you to watch. Mr. Destiny. Starring James Belushi and Michael Caine. With performances by Linda Hamilton, John Lovitz, Courtney Cox, and Rene Russo. And remember, this is 1990, folks, so the chicks are hot. Okay, they're they're definitely with it in that, <laughs> that very nineteen ninety sort of way.
1: <laughs> and I'm the only one who liked it. Do, 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 do.
0: There you go. All right, so that 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 takes care of. I'm the only one who liked it. Again, so we had Tim who chose uh, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, and then of course myself with Mr. Destiny. Uh, next week we're going to be doing another copycat throwdown, and that's going to be featuring Super. Versus Defendor. And these are of course our regular guy becomes a superhero due to family problems and tries to take it on himself to solve said problems by this self-invented superhero. And now I believe it is time for the So we've got three movies this week. We've got 2014's Frank, not 1973, <laughs> but 2014's Frank. The horror sla- or the slasher flick, You're Next, and Johnny Mnemonic. Where do you want to Where do you want to go there, sir?
1: And why don't we start from the bottom and go with uh, Johnny Mnemonic?
0: Ah, yes, Johnny Mnemonic, or How I Learned. To stop worrying about dolphins and love data.
1: It's a very plush bottom, I gotta say, because I mean the movie provides quite a bit of entertainment, but all in the wrong way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it's gotta say something that this was Dolph Lundgren's last theatrical release for 15 years
1: (laughs) before The Expendables.
0: Yes, he did this movie and then he did The Expendables. No so, shit, really. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that, that, you know. Now, he might have done stage or screen or I had doubt some direct-to-video stuff. The yeah, it's direct-to-video stuff, but this was the, his last theatrical release before The Expendables. So from 1995 all the way up to, to 2010. Wow. Yeah. It was a long 15 years. Now, uh, okay, so this movie is a sci-fi action thriller uh it's directed by robert longo uh in his directorial debut and quite possibly it was his first and last movie uh maybe not really but if you've seen this movie you could definitely say that might be why it was his first and last movie um it's about a guy who is a mnemonic courier basically what we have today with the internet um they have a version of that called the net it's just a virtual reality version of the internet and it's not safe storing data on the internet is not safe um, who knew and so they have couriers and basically you plug in and they send data up into your brain you store it in your brain you go to the person who needs the data and you download it again and uh, and the reason why they use humans instead of, say, uh, you know, jump tribes or whatever, aside from the fact that USB didn't exist in 1995, is that because the brain can hold so much data, that's how it gets out there. So we've got a guy, his name's Johnny. He uh, is a mnemonic courier, but he has sacrificed his childhood memories in order to be able to be this courier and, and store so much stuff. He gets this one big job, one <laughs> last job to try and uh, pay for the operation that's going to restore his childhood memories, and off he goes down the rabbit hole. Is that of... what
1: happened? Yeah. Oh, I totally missed that.
0: Yeah, that's the whole reason he takes the job is because his his uh, handler tells him, "Look, you do this job, and you'll you know we'll have enough money to get you the operation to put your uh, memories back."
1: Oh, I was distracted by Keanu's deadpan.
0: Oh yeah, you you, you mean the, just the solid level of acting? That
1: yes, yeah, yeah, sure. Him and the puppet dolphin for supporting actor. <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, so he goes down the rabbit hole of corporate greed and infectious diseases, <laughs> and 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 um, navy dolphins um, te- with with telekinetic powers or whatever. Um, this is just a complete this is okay so this was part of the reason why uh, the 90s was such a great decade for movies because this was truly really and truly the last decade where action movies could just really and truly be turn off your brain popcorn flicks enjoy them they'll make some money they won't make a huge huge amount of money But they'll make their money back. This one, for example, $26 million budget, $52 million box office. Um, You're never going to see a sequel, but everybody has a good time, and you walk away. Now, it's not a good movie. This is literally, uh, and the irony is not lost here, you literally turn your brain off when you watch this movie. (laughs) But um, it's a great popcorn flick tons of cheesy dialogue fun action but don't go into it expecting a good movie um, but you they don't do these kinds of movies anymore because nobody's willing to take a chance on this stuff uh, so you know so that's kind of the downfall I that all, all that being said, I still give this movie three stars, and the only reason is that I do like the movie only because I accept it for what it is. Stupid sci-fi, that, uh, a stupid sci-fi action thriller. You turn your brain off, it's a popcorn flick, and that's okay. Three stars. Go ahead, Tim. What do you got?
1: Yeah, I think whereas to you couldn't, you can just turn your brain off and enjoy it, I just couldn't enjoy it regardless, I think. Now, I thought the idea of the movie was super cool, and in a way, it was ahead of its time, though it was based on a book, and I'm sure of what I've heard of the book, the book does a better job at the whole idea of technology and social commentary. But the idea of not trusting computers fully and the whole idea of the internet kind of taking over and that people will be able to manipulate the internet and in virtual reality is is kind of it's kind of it's definitely ahead of its time ish you know and it was that that in itself was really cool and i think to me that's what kept me from uh from absolutely like hating the movie because even there were i mean despite keanu reeves's performance <laughs> And line delivery, breathy line delivery. I I think I was most surprised by how bad Ice-T was. Not necessarily by Ice-T's ridiculous and most random character I think he's ever played, but his character was J-Bone. That's what his character's name is, J-Bone. Ice-T plays J-Bone. Ah, you know, I, that is definitely going for some 90s black stereotypes. If, uh, if I've ever seen one, right there. Ice-T and J-Bone, put it together. Racial identification, right there. Another thing that got me is that you have... When Keanu Reeves goes into the goes into the computer, you know, he puts on the virtual reality gear, and he's doing all this stuff, and the camera shows you in the virtual world... Why does that look so damn good? And actually, it looks really fucking good for 1995 or 93 or 94 when they started working on the movie. But the rest of the special effects throughout the movie is utter crap, including the puppet dolphin. The puppet dolphin was so bad. They could have had Mr. Limpet as that dolphin, and it could have been a little bit better it could have i mean i'm not i'm not joking that is some really bad puppetry dolphin puppetry for 1994 95 but other than that there are definitely some interesting things about the movie to me it was definitely the plot the plot is what makes this movie if there's anything to make this movie some decent commentary bad acting all around, some ridiculous characters. I mean, the motivations for all these characters, or for the bad guys, are pretty damn hokey. Pretty damn hokey. But yet, people there are people that that definitely enjoy it. It's it's what they call a cult classic. Though it's not that great of a cult classic, it is definitely a cult classic, so there is something there. Yet, Matt gave this movie three stars. I give it two for Johnny Mnemonic.
0: Fair enough. Alright, so... Where do you want to go next, sir?
1: You're next.
0: No, no, you're next. Where do you want to go next?
1: Next you're
0: <laughs> Ah uh, yes, we could do that for a while. Alright, so yes, you are next, the twenty eleven American Slasher film that didn't come out until actually last year. It made the appearance at Toronto uh Toronto. Uh or not Toronto am I thinking of no yeah Toronto Toronto International Film Festival back in 2011 but it actually got a um, theatrical release and DVD release and everything last year Um, this is a slasher flick and quite frankly what uh, a really for me really 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 good slasher flick this is one of the purest slasher flicks that I have seen that I can think of Um, in a while, um. I mean, yeah, I really and truly can't think of an of in the last three or four years a good the last good slasher flick that we watched.
1: There hasn't been one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've seen a good anthology. We've seen a good cabin in the woods movie, but no, no slasher movie. Yeah, this
0: is definitely one of the highest-grade slasher flicks that I have ever seen. And something made on a budget of a million bucks, too, by the way. So, I mean, that, that's that got to tell you just exactly what these kids were working with. This is basically a movie that has all the elements of a good slasher flick. Freaky, uh, freaky bad guys. An unknown uh, reason for the antagonists to be there. A uh, subtext, uh, a, a subplot that exposes said reason. Hot chicks, moderately intelligent guys. Not that the chicks are stupid, but you know, generally the guys are just kind of there to be like the white knights or whatever. Um, so you got moderately intelligent guys and sex scenes. So, uh, and then tons of blood and gore. So all of the elements are there, but it's just—it's really—it's all in the execution. These are, these are people who definitely, special effects-wise, cinematography-wise, definitely knew what the fuck they were doing and knew what they wanted to do from the get-go and accomplished it. Um, I don't necessarily think that the plot was anything uh, overtly original. Uh, it's, it you know this is all basically a uh, kind of a who done it and then why so I'm not going to give you any more on that in case you do want to see this movie and I would very much recommend that you see this movie <clears throat> but once again when it comes to a good slasher flick, you don't need an overtly strong plot. What you need is amazing pacing and that is where this movie really shines the pacing is just unbelievable you are actually left somewhat breathless by the end of this movie you are sitting there trying to figure out wow, what other cool ways are they going to come up with killing people because it's not just as the bad guys keep knocking off people one by one it's also when the group strikes back in very unexpected ways so you, so even as the bad guy count drops a little bit You're still left wondering, well, how are they going to turn this into where they need to go? And then they pull it off. You see yet another great twist to come out, and it just keeps going. Now, again, the twists, which are fun and inventive, keep driving the story forward, and they never linger too long. So it keeps the pacing fun. It keeps the pacing fresh. And while, again, just like I said before, so I don't want to keep rehashing the same thing over and over again, the plot itself isn't that strong, you're not noticing it because you're having too much fun figuring out who's going to drop like a fly next, who's or is or, or are they going to be able to turn the tables. And then by the time you actually get the whole resolution at the end, they do the perfect slasher ending. And if you don't know what a perfect slasher ending is, I can't I can't tell you because I don't want to spoil it. But if you do know what the perfect slasher ending is, then you're going to be again just thoroughly pleased with how it turns out so the only drawback to this movie really and truly the only drawback i have to say is overall certain characters do well but overall i have to say the acting is just not very strong um and there's a little bit too much reliance on the scary bad guy faces which are masks um and to drive kind of the, the fear factor. But with a slasher movie, you're not it's not so much fear for me, anyway. A good slasher movie is not about fear, it's about thrill. You know, you're it's about trying to get your blood pumping a little bit to try and say, Oh, ooh, what was what, gonna happen next, or and then you get that oh kind of factor. That's what makes a good slasher movie. I think slasher is its own uh, subject for another time, but I think slasher is its own kind of particular subgenre of horror that is not necessarily scary, per se, but definitely gross and definitely designed to kind of get you going, you know, ooh, ah, and what have you. Say slasher
1: again. Five times. Slasher. Five more times. Five more times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's a slasher movie. What the fuck do you want to say? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, I'm going to go ahead and give this one four stars. Really, really liked it. Thought it was a great movie. Definitely recommend it, especially for the budget. And there you go. What do you got, sir?
1: Most of the positive things that you uh, that you mentioned about this film, I most definitely agree. This movie relies on its fantastic pacing, and you know, and in, in its likable character. And yes, like every great slasher movie, it comes down to one character. And there needs to be a reason to root for that character. And the person, the character that they had, thanks to that person's fantastic acting, provides you with a good last character to root for, which makes the movie more fun and more exciting, because uh, unlike a lot of movies, you want this person to win. But... Other than that, this is impressive work done by Adam Wingard's great directing and his camera work as well. Yes, like Matt said, it was made on a $1 million budget, which more than likely that also included its promotion as well. So if you take its promotional money that they put or budget away, the movie was made for even less. I think even at like a friend's mansion or something. It does so much right. Not only just the pacing. With pacing, you need good editing. Uh, with good editing and pacing, you need a good vision. And this guy has that good vision. I mean, Adam Wingard is not a stranger to the show. We've seen his work before with a VHS 2. So uh, we, we know there is something there. He also has a movie coming up this next week called The Guest, which uh, I might recommend us to watch next week, which has been getting some... Or in a couple weeks, which has been getting some fantastic—I'm talking fantastic—reviews. It's an action movie, low-budget action movie. But your next is really good. To me, it's more of a home invasion film than it is a slasher film in, in, in a way. And with that, it it mixes so many elements together, so it cannot just be a standalone slasher movie or a standalone home invasion flick. It has a—it uses. One song in particular throughout the movie, uh, a song from the 70s, I don't want to tell you what song it is or who sings it, because you might... Uh, I, I don't know, I just want it to be a surprise, even. Uh, because it's just really cool how, they, how, how that song just kind of pops up throughout the movie. You know, it's very, you know, it's fun, it's entertaining, and it adds to the black humor because a lot of people die, and they have to come up with uh, with some way to have the audience chuckling a little bit. To me, it's more um, more of a thriller than horror. If unless you're, you know, you really get grossed out and you're terrified of blood and gore, then in that case, you're gonna be shitting your pants by the end of this movie. But what brings this movie down? a few notches for me cuz to me this is a 3.75 uh that's the rating I give this movie it's 3.75 the movie has really really bad dialogue the screenwriting you know the the whoever wrote or i'm sure he did but you know if anybody else had a hand in writing the character's dialogue ooh it's bad it's bad i mean luckily about 70% of this movie there's very little talking. Like sometimes a, uh, a character will make a comment or one character will say something or will say like a sentence or two and then somebody will reply with two words. That's usually okay. But usually if a conversation between two of the characters lasts for more than 10 seconds, it is pretty bad. Pretty bad. But even with that, even with really shitty dialogue, Everything else about the movie is really good. Though, oh, actually, I'm thinking of one other thing. If the movie starts off kind of funky, in about 20 minutes in, it finds its footing, and it only goes up from there. So, again, you're next. 3.75 for me.
0: All right. There you go. All right. So, I guess we're now down to 2014's Frank.
1: That That, is right.
0: That's that's it. That's all we got left. Okay. So, Frank, 2014 comedy drama film directed by Lenny Aber abrahamson stars uh domino gleason maggie gyllenhaal scott mcnary and michael fassbender as the title character it's a very weird way to do a movie but it's if you can just get past the premise and 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 kind of say wait a minute this is a movie about a guy that wears a paper mache head um (laughs) then you will definitely enjoy this movie uh it's it's a It basically follows a guy named John. He is a guy that uh, joins a very weird band. Uh, I don't remember how to pronounce this right. Soren Perfs? Tim, do you remember how they pronounce it? Soren Perfs? Soren Perbs.
1: I'm with Domhnall Gleeson's John when he says that uh, when he's about to introduce the band, he has no idea what to call the band. And I'm there with him. I have no idea how to pronounce it. Okay,
0: <laughs> so yeah, so go figure it out however you want, and, and basically, yeah, that. He so he joins this very weird band, and it follows their adventures as they go to Ireland uh, to record an album. Um, now I guess I want to say that while it's a fictional story. The, this is basically inspired by a guy named um, Frank Sidebottom, which was the comic persona of another guy by the name of Chris Seavey. And this and and the Frank Sidebottom wore kind of the paper mache helmet hat, or whatever thing that uh, Michael Fassbender wears as Frank. Now they also do pull from other uh, sources and everything, but so if you are familiar with this comic persona then you have a better you'll be better prepared for kind of the acting and dialogue that you're going to be seeing and hearing going into this movie um there's another movie golly gee and i feel dumb now because i meant to look it up and i totally forgot it was an indie film about a punk rock um about punk rockers they're basically like Siamese twins but they're like this punk rocker as well it's kind of in that similar vein this one however is much lighter in tone than the one that I'm referring to and it just seems to be for me not so much over it's not so much that it's funny in the in the comedic sense but it's very, very light-hearted in the dramatic sense. And it's an excellent blend. So I do, I mean, obviously it qualifies for comedy-drama. But And while there are a couple of funny things that happen for sure, I think that it's just the story, for me, left me very in, in a very positive space. The acting is just absolutely fantastic. Michael Fassbender is completely insane but I, I i do think that uh well i guess the character that he plays but i also think it takes a certain degree of insanity to wear a mask like that for long periods of time <laughs> um and yeah i i really really like this movie the only thing that i would say is that in a bad way it left me wanting more not in a good way, but in a bad way. I really felt that there could that this is one of those times when the movie could have been longer. It runs in at ninety five minutes, so I mean, it's not like it's a it's a pretty quick flick in terms of that. But I really felt that there that there really was more to find in these characters, and that there really was more to see and do. And this isn't the kind of movie that gets a sequel. And um, so that's really the only thing that I find that hurts this movie. That being said, it's still just a phenomenal movie for me. I loved it four and a half stars. Not Well, not quite loved it, loved it, because it's not a perfect movie. But I really, 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 really liked it, so four and a
1: half stars. There you go. Bring us home, Tim. Well, wow, I did pretty good with, uh, with recommending that movie, then. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you liked it, because I really liked it, too. It's a four and a half star movie for me, as well. One thing I want to mention, particularly about the movie... Is the opening of the movie with Dom Hill Gleason's John, his character John, who is the character that's wanting to join the band, or who ends up joining the band as the keyboardist. He's walking around uh, the town that he lives in, trying to create songs based on whatever he sees, whatever, you know, whatever he sees that inspires him to create lyrics and whatever. And those cutscenes alone, so the first, you know, three minutes or so, completely sets the tone of the film. The tone being different, nuanced, quirky, clever, to name just four right there. And it also establishes his character, John's character, completely, in whole, right there. And it establishes his character because John, and and it's trying to show what he is, is wanting to get out of life. You know, he thinks that to be a musician, to be like the great punk rockers from the 80s, early 90s. You have to come from a troubled home. And with that, it it kind of bothers him because his home is a good home. You know, his parents are very supportive. or They're very nice. They, live, they let him live with him while he's working and he's single and all that stuff. He has his own room with his own instruments and his own computer to compose his own music. And he's able to go off for a long period of time with the band for... A year or so without his parents, you know, not really saying anything about it. You know, they they support him, and to him, that's not a rocker. So he's trying to trying so hard to create music, and at the same time, trying to uh, encapsulate the the inner, I guess, Sid Barrett or the inner uh, the lead singer from New Order. I don't remember because that's what he thinks. He thinks that these guys lived horrible lives, you know, that something made them become great musicians or influential musicians. But it's what he learns later on in the movie or throughout the course of the movie when he's, uh, when he actually joins Frank's band that, you know, his, his whole idea of that just kind of opens up a bit. It's just a really good movie. It's funny Quirky, nuanced performances. There's a lot to like about the movie. The movie suffers some pacing issues, but that doesn't really take a whole lot away from the movie. The movie is different. It's a little darker. But it's not that different, or it's not that dark. I mean, I think that's what people that don't watch or those who don't watch a lot of movies and aren't not used to watching offbeat films, they label these movies as dark and bro- now, like, I don't want to say brooding but but dark and weird and offbeat and really it's just a movie and it's a movie about something much more depressing and kind of sad that you find out later on in the film and with that I give this movie 4.5 stars thoroughly enjoyed it and I highly recommend it.
0: Well, Alright then okay so next week the flicks are going to be The Drop Startup, up and filth And I believe that does bring us to the close of yet another episode and to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, as always, the music you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at Facebook.com and ReverbNation.com, both, slash Cries of Solace. We, of course, are, as always, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow me personally at Twitter. This is Matt, of course. At knit twit one two three four five, And you can follow the Yellow Brick Road and possibly find Tim and follow him as well. Guess you could also, if you really wanted to, you could even subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Arnold Schwarzenegger, I get to say this. I saw a woman wearing a sweatshirt with Guess on it. I said, thyroid problem?
1: And this is Tim. And uh, I will talk to you next week. Hopefully.